You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 19th of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. I'm pushing ordinary human contacts and relationships in a set of human behaviours to certain extremes, which are both grotesque and comical and, you know, horrific at the same time, you know. That's what I wanted to do. If you describe that as cap, fine, I'd uh, take that description, you know. But is Neil Jordan's new film really an heir to cinema's camp tradition? My guests Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Carlotta Rabello and Ben Ryland will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including climate change and the various means by which it is commanding headlines, the reignition of the row over what should and should not be recognised by the Cannes Film Festival, and Monocle and Gestalton's new tribute to bricks and mortar retail. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Carlotta Ribello, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Ben Ryland. Welcome all to the programme. And we will start with some flagrant product placement. In a bookstore near you, soon, if not sooner, you will be able to purchase a handsome orange volume entitled The Monocle Guide to Shops, Kiosks and Markets, produced by Monocle in association with our good friends at Gestalten. The book is a fine-looking monument to the virtues of bricks-and-mortar retail and is published at a time when many traditional such entities Enterprises, especially here in the UK, are struggling. Debenhams, the latest high street fixture to lapse into administration earlier this month. Um, ben, are there useful lessons in this book for how to run a bricks and mortar retail enterprise without going broke? Absolutely. I think the, the the beauty of this book is not that it's just physically beautiful, it's that it also uh, strikes on the importance of having an actual beautiful shop. So I know you mentioned Debenhams just there, and I don't want to have a too much of a go at Debenhams, but uh, for those listening outside the UK, Debenhams is one of those big, old department stores, and unfortunately, it just is in a bit of a mess. And if you walk into any of those stores, you come away thinking, well, there was no point in, in me browsing there. I, I, don't, I don't feel like I want to actually buy any of the things that are on display here. Now, the department stores that are doing well around the world are those that understand that shopping is an experience. And I don't mean that in that kind of tacky, experiential way. Like, we don't want to, we don't want people riding around on unicycles in the department stores. We just want things to be displayed beautifully. And you do get that when you go into a lot of these beautiful stores. And one thing that I don't understand is that when I watch a lot of old movies, and as anyone who knows me will know that I do that a lot... Um, the department stores in older films are always absolutely stunning. They're not silly. They're just really sophisticated places that know how to provide good service. They know how to make people feel special. And they know how to give someone an experience that they're not going to get sitting at home in their pyjamas. That's what shopping is supposed to be all about. And I think that's what this book is all about. Um, Fernando, where do you stand on the whole shopping as an experience thing? Because I, I, I will confess, at the risk of subverting the entire premise of the book and indeed this item to being something of a shopping from home in one's pyjamas variety shopper because that means you obviously just can get stuff delivered to your house without having to interact with the general public. 
Well, I have to say I'm the kind of person that I do enjoy the experience of shopping and I do make an effort to go to shops that actually provide me that because, you know, we spoke about Debenhams and I know some other shops, they are having some financial problems. But I have to say most of them, they, they have problems and, and it's not because people are buying online. They look dated. They are not nice. People don't want to go there. And of course, it's better to buy in your pajamas, you know, if you're going to a, a great place with bad service. You know, uh, there are many shops around and, and Ben mentioned uh, about departments stores. There are some very good ones. I mean, listen, we live in London. You have, uh, you know, Selfridges, Liberty. Of course, you might say, oh, but that's a bit more expensive. But I'm just giving a few examples here. Uh, and, I, I, for example, even, you know, our local shops here in Marylebone, I think they are fantastic. They are very from, good. From the newsagent. And, and I think this gives me such a daily pleasure uh, to know that I can go to those places. I'm not anti-buying online, but I'd love to go to a good shop. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the newsagent just ne near our office here uh, in Marylebone because often we'll go there without actually knowing what we want to buy. And I think that that's what summarizes the whole experience is the value of uh, a good high street, good retail, is when you actually are not exactly sure what you want, but the experience and the offering makes it up, makes makes it worth it. And just to be able to go there, get some guidance on the sort of things you like, okay, maybe this is a product for you. Now, there is also room, of course, for if you're very sure what you want, you know, it's a, this exact product, uh, this quantity, yeah, why not order it online and just get it over with? But the whole experience of discovering a brand, discovering something new, um, maybe uh, using a pin or pinpointing something that you like to then explore uh, another article is exactly, I think, what makes these experiences uh, interesting. And um, I mean, uh, going back to, to the book, The Monocle Guide to Shops, Kiosks and uh, Markets, it's interesting that you mentioned, Andrew, um, shops, uh, department stores that are struggling because one of the chapters here in the book uh, is all about, you know, five shops that... Um, we as a brand thought, wish still existed and uh, a couple of them are department stores that you know um, for some reason or another be it an accident be it just you know uh, how the market worked uh, they ended up disappearing and how might those shops have looked today uh, so it's important not only to look forward in the brands uh, that today are uh, taking up that space in the high street but to reminisce a bit about how different shopping experience could be uh, in Paris or in London if these uh, uh, shops had stayed. Uh, just before we move on from this item, I wanted to ask you each in turn, and we will go clockwise around the table, so you're up next as well, Carlotta, if you have a particular all-time favourite shop by way of illustration of what we're talking about here. Uh, well, not trying to... Um just go back to Portugal, but the <laughs> but I will. We'd be disappointed uh, if you did. The, there's this amazing uh, bookshop which is actually featured in the book Livraria Lelo in Porto, which is absolutely stunning and is one of those that I always think I will go there because I want to buy this specific book, and I always leave slightly bankrupted and after spending an entire day there, and it's just this magical place that you know. No one will frown upon you if you decide to actually start reading a bit of a book. People, the staff is great. It's been run by the same family for generations, um, and it's just a stunning building. Um, I definitely recommend anyone to go there because it definitely encapsulates everything we advocate in these 400-something pages. Ben. 
Uh, yeah, there is a particular part of Melbourne, and I, you'll have to forgive me, Andrew, I'm not going to say one shop, I'm going to say two. Uh, there's a particular part of Melbourne, it's at the top of Burke Street, and you could almost call it the Books Quarter, I suppose. I know exactly the block you mean. You have these two beautiful bookshops, and just across from them is a beautiful music shop. Uh, the two bookshops, one of them is called Hill of Content, which is a beautiful name for a shop at the top of the Burke Street Hill, and not too far next to that is another bookshop called The Paperback, and they are two absolutely beautiful bookshops. The paperback in particular is very, very small, which is one of the best things about it because you can have a bit of a nose around and find some treasure in there. They're all new books. They're not secondhand books. Uh, I love secondhand bookshops as well, though. Uh, but they are the the classic traditional bookshop that you you go there because you want to pick up the book first. You want to hold it. You want to look at it. You want to browse through it a little bit. You can't do that online. And can I just also say that these bookshops are actually beautiful to look at. Go to any of the department stores, the classic old department stores. They're almost always in big, old, beautiful buildings. A lot of them that have closed, you look at the buildings they used to inhabit, they're always big and beautiful. Have a look at Amazon. Amazon, to look at, it's one of the ugliest things in the entire world. I can't stand looking at Amazon. I use it, I shop on it, but it's it's just so hideous. Fernando. Mine is actually a super, supermarket in Sao Paulo that I wrote in the book as well. It's called Casa Santa Luzia. Family runs since 1926 and they, they are chic. They sell bread, amazing selection of wine and my favorite Jewish biscuits as well. I wouldn't mind being trapped there for quite a few days, actually. <laughs> Honestly, it's it's beautiful. Uh, well, I, I will award my shout out to a, a combine a combination of Grün Guitars of Nashville, though I don't think I can actually afford anything in it. Uh, and and because almost all of the rest of us have talked about bookshops, I will as well. Though I'm going to name not specific shops but a district, which is there's a bunch of antique bookstores quite close to each other in York, uh, in the north of England, which is a beautiful, beautiful city. But they're just great antique bookstores and. Again, Again, it's that thing, as you were saying, Carlotta, every time I've walked into one thinking vaguely I will have a bit of a look in here, you sort of walk out an hour later with absolutely no money left and needing a wheelbarrow. Um, but we will move along now because May is nearly upon us, which means that so is the Cannes Film Festival, selections for which were unveiled this week. Reaction was dominated, not for the first time, by what is not there. For the second year running, Netflix finds its films disbarred from Cannes due to ongoing griping from French distributors who want to see Netflix compelled to release their films in cinemas, rather than permitting people to just enjoy them at home without having to endure the general public rustling crisp packets and fidgeting with their phones. Um, ben, is, is can flailing against the tide here? I don't really understand what the fuss is about, to be honest. Uh, I, to be, I, I don't know which way this is eventually going to fall, whether Cannes will be forced to welcome Netflix films to the festival, but I don't understand the fuss over whether they will or they won't, because this confusion never existed before. You never had NBC saying to the Academy, we want our telemovie, our Danielle Steele novella, to <laughs> be... To be uh, up there for Best Picture at the Oscars. That was never a question. We always understood the difference between a telemovie and a movie that plays at the cinema. And somehow, because streaming has come along, everyone's got confused and doesn't know what to do and there's an identity crisis. Well, I think can are well within their rights to say if a film doesn't play at the cinema, it is not a film. I mean, it's, it's just simple, isn't it? If a painting isn't done with paint, if it's done with crayons, it's not a painting. It's so a, It's a crayoning. It's a, it's a crayoning, exactly. And I've said this before, and I don't want to sound like like a broken record, but maybe I will anyway. Uh, years ago when I worked in a beautiful old cinema in Melbourne called the Astor, the man who managed that cinema said to me that 
if you if you have not seen the Mona Lisa at the museum at the Louvre, then you haven't really seen the Mona Lisa, have you? If you've only seen the the souvenir postcard, then you haven't really seen the real thing. So. Surely, if you're talking about a film such as Gone with the Wind, which was made to be seen on a big screen, it was made at a time when home entertainment didn't exist, maybe it's okay to say you need to see that film in a cinema or on a big screen, otherwise you haven't really experienced it as it was supposed to be experienced. That seems fair enough to me. I mean, but I think uh, while I agree with, uh, with your point and really don't understand why it has become an issue... Trying to explain it, though, isn't it because a lot of the films that streaming services are um, are releasing oscillate kind of in between a feature film and a TV series? You know, this format that kind of didn't exist before, uh, the idea that, or, and even some of the series operate in that way, that each episode almost is a film in its own right. And I think what that's probably what has led to this uh, confusion that we have nowadays of uh, ne- be it a Netflix or an Amazon Prime or any other uh, streaming service to feel they're entitled to ask, wait a minute, why am I I'm not there? I do agree that it should be as simple as that. Like if your film hasn't been in cinemas, then you shouldn't be even considered. But at a time that, you know, the, there's so much money being put in to these productions that are meant for you to see in your device, sometimes just your mobile phone, a laptop, a projector at home if you're lucky. Um, where, do, where does it stand? Well, the thing is that the Emmys do have a, a section, a, a category there mm. for, for telemovies. That's always been there. And it's, it's, it's strange to me that, that Netflix and Amazon aren't, uh, aren't lobbying the Emmys to, to allow their, their films to be considered for that. They're only interested in the Oscars and the Cannes Film Festival because they know that there is a level of prestige that comes with it. Now, look, I think it's okay for Cannes to say, look, you're either this or you're that, but you can't come here and say that you are with us if you're not supporting the the, the French cinema industry. I think Netflix, they're a bit like that rich kid that wants to be cool as well because <laughs> it, it's true because when, when they released Roma, they had this massive marketing campaign at the Oscars. So they want to be respected. I think deep inside, they want to be part of the gang. I think they wish they would be at Cannes even though Cannes is saying, well, au revoir because they, they really don't want. But uh, So I think even Netflix is a bit conflicted because you know they, they actually, with Roma, they did actually release the film in selected cinema. So they're making a few exceptions. But yeah, I think can they have the right to say sorry? We don't want you here. But but Ben, isn't that where the difficulty is? That that a lot of what Netflix is making, like for example, Roma, is is not the equivalent of your sort of CBS telly movies. They are actually making things which uh, aspire to being considered as cinematic art, uh, and therefore they would like it to be considered alongside cinematic art, and indeed even alongside Ken Loach's films. Absolutely, and I think Netflix are well within their rights to aspire to that. But that doesn't mean. That you can uh, be entitled to take over someone else's festival. Okay, Cannes has been around for many, many decades and they are considered the most prestigious film festival in the world because they've been around for this long and they have built up that reputation. Netflix got here yesterday. So if they want to be, build up that sort of reputation, they've got to work for it. And telemovies have not always been tacky. Like, we, they t- carry a bit of a bad name, but there are plenty of mm. telemovies out there that have actually been extraordinarily good. There was one starring Sally Field called Sybil, which is one of the greatest performances that she ever gave. Uh, so you, it is possible for these telemovies to have that co- sort of reputation, but I, I just 
I think Can is well within their rights to just say, no, you, you can't come and just join our club just out of the blue. I mean, look, Can is not that interested in the prestige of having their films be massive successes on Netflix and distributed all around the world. If you look at the lineup of films that played in competition last year, not many of them got massive distribution deals around the world. That's not what Can is all about. It is actually all about the art. So... I don't think it's surprising that Can isn't going to be that fussed whether Netflix is here or not. It's mostly Netflix getting their knickers in a twist about this. Uh, Fernando, just as a final thought on this, though, is Can defending something that is ultimately going to prove to be undefendable, though, that, that technology will eventually overwhelm the cinema? Just thinking of what Ben was saying earlier, and you were right, of course, about the time that a film like Gone with the Wind was released, that was prior to most people even owning televisions. Whereas an even... Te- you even going back 15, 20 years, there was a, an obvious disparity in just what you could see on a screen between between the television and a cinema screen. But that, granted that most people don't have places big enough to put entire cinema screens in, Fernando, but you can now get a very decent-sized screen with very decent quality into your home for actually not all that much money, all things considered. Is cinema going to be able to stand up against that forever? I'm not sure forever, but for now it is standing up. I mean, we still have a lot of, lot, lot of countries, perhaps not in the US, but there's a lot of uh, films breaking records at the box office. Uh, so people are still enjoying. I mean, look, look, even here in Europe, I mean, everybody has access to streaming services, but they still go to the cinema. Uh, I think for now, cinema is very much safe. I don't know about the future, but, uh, you know, as you say, not everyone has a, has a space to put a, like a cinema screen in their houses. Okay, we will take a short break now. You're listening to me. Dory House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Ben Ryland, Carlotta Ribello, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. More shortly. Rome boasts an ancient specialization in restoring the masterpieces of the past. But thanks to innovative technology, the works of Rome's art restorers is also very current. Monocle Films travel to the Eternal City to visit restoration studio Merlini Storti. The founders of the all-women team were trained by the former chief restorer at Vatican Museum's Maurizio De Luca. We can understand how restoration has always been present and how from the historical background schools of restoration were founders that have formed a generation of restorers who currently are considered the best in the world. The Art of Restoration, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Ben Ryland, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Carlotta Ribello. Now, climate change is never not an issue, but there are moments at which it seems more of an issue than others, and we appear to be experiencing one such right now. Climate change was very much a factor in recent elections in Finland and is a key issue in the election campaign currently underway in Australia. Here in London, an amount of traffic has been stopped by protesters from Extinction Rebellion and a new report by the network for greening the financial system, an alliance of 34 central banks from all over the world, has emphasised that tackling climate change is, among many other things, an economic imperative. Um, Carlotta, do you think if this case is going to be made to the people who need to listen that the the central bankers are likely to have more luck than dreadlocked jugglers blocking buses on Westminster Bridge? I think until we stop making um, climate change about the individual actions and the collective ones, 
bonds, be it that a government, a, coll- a collective of banks, etc., we won't get anywhere. Uh, we're still stuck in that the um, discourse and debate over, oh, maybe if uh, you stop, if I stop um, asking for a, a plastic straw every time I uh, want to drink, or uh, if I stop, you know, taking a disposable um, uh, cutlery uh, whenever I go for lunch, then if everyone does that, that's how change uh, is going to happen. Yes, it might have a small impact, but until, you know, people, unfortunately, in higher positions of actually fueling some sort of change uh, make up their minds, we won't get anywhere. Um, Ben, we should talk about our native Australia, which is undergoing an election campaign at the moment. It it strikes me that climate change has for quite a long time now, been a political issue in Australia in a way that it is not in many other countries. Is that because um, Australians perceive ourselves as being right on the sharp end of it, or is it actually because we are a country fortunate enough in every other respect pretty much that we can afford to spend time arguing with each other about climate change? It's a fairly complicated one, actually, because on one hand, it hasn't been a huge issue politically in Australia for voters because there hasn't been a lot of discussion about it policy-wise for for some years. But then if you dig just slightly beneath the surface, you realise actually it's climate change policy that has cost just, I'm pretty sure, every prime minister their job going back to Kevin Rudd. It's, they've all come undone somehow because of some sort of fickle issue to do with climate policy that, that still hasn't actually made it through. So, yes, it is a, a really serious issue. And then, of course, there's the current the case of the current government seeing what happened in the seat of Wentworth when the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull gave up his seat after being ousted as Prime Minister and then watched someone, an independent, come in and take that seat away for the first time in Australia's electoral history, take that safe seat away from them. Uh, and she, she did that flying the flags of wanting to do something about climate change. I think that really set the scene for what is going to be, it seems at least in part, a climate change election. But then again, you've got issues like we've seen recently in the past few days in Australia where there's been all this anxiety about people's utes. And for those listening at home, <laughs> a ute is a utility vehicle. I believe that's, I believe that's the, the full Th- That, that is the etymology, yes. Yeah. Ute as an Australian abbreviation of utility. We are, we are too busy to use multi-syllable words. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So there's this uh, strange issue where uh, the, the Labour opposition wants to introduce legislation that would incentivise people to to lean towards electric vehicles, to put it, put, put it simply. And that has has then created this scare campaign where you had the Prime Minister saying that uh, that, that Labour want to come and take away your utes and that these electric cars, they're not going to tow your trailer, they're not going to tow your boat, they're not going to get you to your favourite camping spot with your family. So basically terrifying people into thinking that all of these Labour men are going to come up and take your utes away and that's what's going to happen. Now that's of course not what climate change is all about and I think that touches on what Carlotta was talking about here. You've got this younger generation who see this sort of ridiculous conversation and, and they can see right through it. They know what happening. They see the David Attenborough documentaries, okay? They know what's happening around the world. And there's real fear going on. And it's only going to be those sorts of protests that make a really ongoing change. But can I talk about the problem, I think, on on how uh, climate change is perceived? Of course, mind you, don't worry, guys, I do think the planet is warming and everything. But, you know, (laughs) but I think for some it's perceived as a middle class worry. And, And some 
the way the protesters do it can sound very preachy and, and almost elitist in a way. You know, mind you that I am pro climate change. I, you know, I want to be green. But, but, but it's interesting, even in a country like Brazil, it was at the bottom of the list when it comes to, to the worries of, of, of the general public. Of course, if you look at, a, you know, at a, at a middle class that studied, that went to university, maybe it was their worry. But, but sometimes that's what kind of annoys me a little bit. I think they should change perhaps their tactics to, to include more the general public and not just people that went to university. You know what I mean? Why they don't go to working class towns as well to see how, you know, the closure of certain industry would affect them. And that annoys me a little bit when it comes to this topic. I think that's why you see um, the younger generations more involved Mm. because that sort of education that perhaps... uh, in older generations, only if you went to university or you have the interest and curiosity of reading newspapers every day, you would learn about it through that. Today is being thought in what is... um, described as, I guess, compulsory, mandatory schools. So you have the younger generations are way way more aware of what's actually going on because they have to read about it. And I guess a key difference is exactly in that, is in education. Okay, well, we will end tonight by returning seamlessly to a couple of themes already explored in tonight's episode, i.e. film and shameless (laughs) cross-promotional shilling. Uh, Tonight's episode of the Monocle 24 Daily, broadcasting at 2200 London time, will include, among much else, Ben Ryland's interview with Neil Jordan, no less, about his new film Greta, starring Isabel Huppert. Um, Ben, we heard a clip from uh, the, the... the interview at the top of the programme, in which you were discussing with Neil Jordan the idea that this film should be placed in the lineage of camp cinema. Yes, absolutely. And I enjoyed your pronunciation of Isabel Huppert's name. It was I very camp, best. Andrew. I do my best. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was uh, I was quite fascinated by this film because watching it, I, I going into it, I had no idea what to expect. Uh, I knew it was going to be a thriller and that would be it, but I did not expect it to be so campy. And when I when I came away, I, I asked uh, Neil Jordan about uh, his he, he, why he made such a campy film, and he he seemed to be slightly surprised that I was calling it camp. But then when we discussed a little bit further what how I saw what camp should be defined as, then he was absolutely adamant that yes, it was camp. That's exactly what he was trying to do. And what I found interesting is that a lot of the reviews of this film haven't picked up on the campy tones at all. It feels as if there has been a bit of a, 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 a there has been a drought when it comes to camp humour in recent years. And I think a lot of very clever people have forgotten what it actually is. Well, we have a clip of the kind of thing you're talking about. This is from one of your favourite camp films. This may be familiar to our listeners. When I lived in Pauper Spit, I'd just stay in my room for hours and listen to ABBA songs. Sometimes I'd stay in there all day. Since I've met you and moved to Sydney, I haven't listened to one ABBA song. It's because now my life's as good as an ABBA song. It's as good as Dancing Queen. That is somebody who would pronounce Hooper as Huppet as well. Absolutely, in, 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 it is. In, in, in my defence. Uh, that's, that's from Muriel's Wedding, of course. Yes. I would say the greatest Australian film ever made. Uh, and it is, I, I would argue that that is camp. And the wonderful thing about camp is that when camp is done very, very well, you can never be quite sure whether it is camp or not. Well, this does bring us on to an alternative definition of camp. And we have a clip here from Fernando's submission in the category of all-time great camp movies again listeners may be familiar with this this is holy water (laughs) i name myself after this holy water 
Chrissy Lou Connors used to have ginger brown hair and little bitty tits. It's amazing what paint and a surgeon can do. You have great tits. They're really beautiful. Thank you. Now that is from Showgirls, which is of ah. course is of course total garbage. But has, has, no, has, has yeah, Fernando, it is. It just is. Uh, but if we could move on from that argument, because that's not an argument, it is. Uh, but but it has become nevertheless enduringly popular as a camp classic. But it does prompt the question of whether camp needs to be intentional because I don't think Showgirls was doing a thing. I think Showgirls was just a bad film that didn't understand how bad a film it was and there's something endearing about that. It, it is a bit misunderstood in my opinion because, <laughs> you know, it, it's honestly because I think the director was trying to do an erotic drama epic that he spent a lot of money doing this. Trying to. He was trying, of course, the, peop- the people didn't react at the time, but I did when I watched during a school trip I remember back in 97 school did you go to? <laughs> no, it, was, it was a bit hidden, actually. So. <laughs> but it was, when I saw the film, I was like, what a fantastic film. How liberating, you know? And um, and that scene, I mean, says everything. It's Fernando, crystal. I need to ask you, because there's this wonderful mm. essay by Susan Sontag called Notes on Camp, and she in part uh, defines camp as passionate failure. That's passionate got to be failure, the, yes. It's the perfect description of Showgirls, is it not? Passionate failure. But, but Carlotta, do you th- does camp have to be knowing, though? Is, does does there always have to be a slight arch of eyebrow, glance to camera, we know what we're doing here? I mean, I think there's something quite uh, fascinating when you, you kind of can tell it wasn't intentional and it's just uh, amazing for the viewer and no one, not anyone else. Sontag but, says you have to see everything in quotation marks. It's not, <laughs> it's not Carlotta, it's Carlotta. Carlotta. But, but, quotation, mean, but quotation marks, that, that famous line of Susan Sontag does suggest... <laughs> Um, a conscious choice on the, on the part of the the artiste in question. Well, that's right. As as you described it just then, you're seeing the world with one eyebrow raised. Like you just you kind of know that this is all a bit rubbish, but we're enjoying it anyway. <laughs> Should we just start watching every single movie like that and then just see where it takes? Let's us? rewatch oh, Showgirls. Uh, okay. Well, well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Unfortunately, we are all off round to Fernando's place to watch Showgirls. Apparently, uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Carlotta Ribello, and Ben Ryland. Thank you for joining us at Midori House. Uh, it was produced by Fernando, researched by Julia Webster. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Marcus Hippie. I'll be back with more on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200, also including Ben's interview with Neil Jordan. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Enjoy the rest of your Easter weekend. Music.